Hi, this is Elliot, host of Inspired Edinburgh. Please come and check out our Facebook page for all of the latest updates. If I could ask a small favour, please could you subscribe and review our show on iTunes. By doing this, you'll be helping us reach a wider audience and have a greater impact by challenging perceptions and encouraging people to live a more conscious life. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Inspired Edinburgh. Powerful conversations helping you reconnect with your purpose. I'm Elliot Reeves and my guest today is Darren McGarvey. Darren, better known by stage name Lockie, is a Scottish rapper and hip-hop recording artist who has made regular appearances as a social commentator. Through your music, writing and social media channels you address deprivation, issues in society and the need for greater community and social responsibility. You've released 17, I believe, self-funded musical releases since 2003 and are currently writing your first book, Poverty Safari. Phenomenal. Darren, Loki, it's a pleasure to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Elliot. It's great to be here. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad. Um, I'm really looking forward to having a good, you know, deep conversation with you and finding out a bit more about you. I really, really enjoy watching a lot of your YouTube content and, and seeing what you're posting. So, yeah, great stuff. Brilliant. So it would be super to start with the early years growing up, what that was like for you and uh, taking that up to the point, I suppose, where you maybe found your, your music. Okay, well, uh, uh, the story goes that I grew up in an area of Glasgow called Pollock, which is on the south side. It's a sort of classically socially deprived area. Mm -hmm. uh, during the 80s, it was uh, high on many of the the, the the this is the worst place ever you could go lists that were going around really? uh, you know like the in terms of economic data zones and all of that it was either very high or very low and whichever list you uh, looked at mm -hmm. um, obviously when you're very young you're not sort of aware of the fact that you're living in that environment because you have nothing else to compare it to so um, we, we but obviously like many of the families in our area we we were susceptible to a lot of the problems that are associated with poverty. Yeah. Uh, problems to do with living in a violent community, living in conditions of stress, how this impacts on how people develop their coping strategies like alcoholism uh, and so on and so forth. But all that said, it's, it's great character building as they say. Hmm. I, I yeah, lived with my parents uh, in a few different houses actually we moved around a lot my mother started drinking quite heavily after i was born and uh, and this meant that our life was quite chaotic you know she used to write checks instead of paying the mortgage she would go and buy alcohol and drugs she even tried to buy drugs with the intention of selling drugs and ended up injecting them all and uh, and then you know we were in we, my dad was getting threatened by drug dealers and all of this chaos really in our lives. So by the time I was five, we had moved house three times. And one was a moonlight flitting so that no one knew where we were. And uh, then as the years went on, we just we just lived in that chaos of an alcoholic home. Mm -hmm. One of the great things about our life though was the fact my dad's an artist and he, uh, he actually met my mum at a recording studio where uh, he was playing with his band, so you know, where they were kind of young romantics at the time. And as much as he didn't get the chance to pursue 
his dreams when he was a teenager of being like a pop star. Mm -hmm. uh, he did stay creative and musical all through our, our childhood and always encouraged us to be creative. And so this gave me a great outlet for a lot of the other difficulties that I was experiencing. Mm -hmm. And also my dad never bought into the idea that you should go and do a job you hate. Uh, you know, he says he would rather I didn't work than I did a job that I hated and that I should always pursue my creative impulses or artistic impulses and obviously I was keen to write and I was keen to perform and keen uh, to express myself through music. So mm -hmm. he really enabled that and supported that and encouraged that and, and that's been the sort of, like for me anyway in my life, that's been a kind of form of salvation for me. Yeah. That's been the continuity of what has otherwise been quite chaotic, at least certainly the first 25 years of my life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay, so what was your education like and what were your sort of career aspirations when you went through the, the educational <clears throat> system? In an area like Pollock, then, for all of the best intentions of the local authority to provide resources to the school, to the skills and talents of the teachers, everyone is inhibited by the sheer scale of the social problems in which the school is couched. So essentially what happens is you have a high volume of people coming to school with psychological problems, emotional issues that manifest behaviourally mm. as either challenging uh, attitudes and behaviour, aggression, or as learning difficulties that need additional support such as attention deficit or hyperactive disorder. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and also you have other aspects of lifestyle that affect how people behave. So when you, when, you when you begin to see a school in a working class community or a deprived community in that context, mm -hmm. you start to understand why the schools are such challenging places to learn and such challenging places to teach. Mm -hmm. And this impacts on everyone's learning, regardless of whether you come from a troubled family, kind of like I did, or if you come from, you know, one of the more stable working class families, of which there are many, by the way, and that, that I always have to reiterate that. When I talk about poverty, I'm often talking about the underbelly below the working class that doesn't get spoken about a lot. There's an underbelly of the working class where there's a lot of worklessness, idleness, low self-esteem, mm -hmm. where there are cultures of aggression and abuse and violence that permeate everyone's life and, and actually, you know, deform them physiologically in many ways, you know, in terms of how they interpret the world and the perception that they are constantly being threatened by everything. Yeah. So, so, so I've got an insight into that as well as a sort of traditional working class background. Mm -hmm. But in a school, you've got a microcosm really of the community, you know, and, and you have all different types of people from all different types of background. I was lucky in the fact that I was being encouraged at home to be creative and artistic. Mm -hmm. Very often young people in communities where I come from, people don't acknowledge their skills or even sometimes people will mock their skills and people and, and, and somebody's talents can often become a sense uh, something that they conceal or feel a sense of shame about. Mm -hmm. You know, to be intelligent, to be articulate, to be expressive is frowned upon in these communities and yeah. in, in, in school. There's a lot of hyper-masculinity, there's a lot of a need to be perceived as tough, as hard, as aggressive. Obviously that's all bravado on the surface of it. Really the deeper the, the, the deeper uh, purpose of that is to deter aggression. It's, it's because when you live in a violent community you develop an instinct to deter aggression by being aggressive. 
and, and in a school you've just got loads of people behaving like that, so it's hard to learn. But yeah. obviously because I was encouraged to to, um, to to be creative, then at least there was one aspect of school that I was able to zero in on, even though I, I struggled with reading, I struggled with maths, I struggled with anything that re required concentration because um, I, 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 I had very fleeting attention, my head was always racing, I was always worried about what was going on around me, felt like I was in danger. And then also, they used to wheel a tuck trolley through our school classes, you know, and interrupt the lessons and sell us all sweets and cans of fizzy juice. Okay. And if I had money, I'd be getting loaded up on that as well. Yeah. So you can see there, even just in this description I'm giving you, how a lot of the tropes of lower class life begin to converge in a school, yeah. especially back then in the 90s, before we really kind of understood the role nutrition plays and how people learn and behave. Yeah. So, so that was kind of, for me, the primary school, secondary school experience. Mm -hmm. I always in my head knew that I wanted to do something that involved writing and I very early on knew that I would probably have to write about my own experience first at least in order to get my foot in the door mm -hmm. because what happened was uh, when I started performing it would be issue based stuff you know that you get in housing schemes artists come in from out of town and they put on a play about drugs or sectarianism mm -hmm. so I always had a kind of real depth of experience to bring to these things in terms of what I had been through yeah and then when people started to see that I expressed myself well, then they would give me a platform to talk about these things. And this would lead to more opportunities. So essentially I started kind of to be, I started being conditioned almost to sort of like retell my story as a kind of, uh, as a party piece almost, you know, <laughs> and then, and, and, and then this would lead to something. And, I, I, and then I started to make connections in my head about, all right, okay, so this is actually kind of propelling me forward. So I started to realise actually it was quite a powerful experience that I'd been through. I didn't yeah. think it was significant. I didn't think I was significant. I mean, I'm not, but when people react to you talking, you start to get a sense of, oh, hang on, this is a big deal to them. All right, okay. So this is a value. So this is a currency I now have because mm. I don't have anything. <laughs> so now I can trade this for yeah. something, whether it be a bit of self-esteem, whether it be a sense of heading in a direction, or sometimes very tangible opportunities, do you know what I mean? That can uh -huh. lead to things. And that's really been the, the, the that's really been the thread of my life since then. Yeah. You're you're a truly fascinating guy, you know. It's interesting. I watched one of your YouTube videos and we kind of touched upon this earlier, is this idea of being policed mm. um for the the you know, diverse vocabulary that you have. Mm. And it's what's interesting is you've kind of found yourself perhaps as an outlier, but maybe in no man's land, because it's like you're perceived as being too intelligent to uh, align yourself with people that are in the scheme. Mm. But because you're from the scheme, it's like politicians and academics perhaps look at you as like you're that guy. So how have you been able to, you know, uh, break through the perceived ceiling, if you like? And well, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's something I reflect on quite a lot mm -hmm. because it, it does, for me, create a lot of confusion. Mm -hmm. um, also, I'm sort of rudderless on the choppy seas of this kind of like, uh, I don't know, class disparity almost. Yeah. I mean, I see myself as coming from, I don't even know if it's working class, but I always, I see myself as lower class. Um, yeah. No, a lot of people in my house didn't work. You know, my dad had to bring up three kids on his own. Mm -hmm. So for the first 10, 15 years of our lives, then my dad couldn't really work. 
he worked in the house raising us <laughs> and that was a full-time job yeah. believe me yeah. so so like working class i don't necessarily connect with that as much i see myself as lower class i define mm. myself against the absolute of people who are more privileged if you know what i mean yeah. so i look out and i see the things that other people have whether it be opportunities, whether it be material things, or the communities that they live in, which are palpably calmer and less tense places to live, where mm -hmm. people just don't appear to be as affected by stress as, as us. Um, so for me, like like having insight into both sides of the tracks mm -hmm. is valuable, and actually I'm able to I'm able to kind of translate a lot of what I see yeah. across the divide to people in communities that I come from and then also able to articulate some of the nuance of the lower class experience to people who haven't experienced it. Yeah. But at the same time, this can uh, this brings me into different forms of conflict because there are expectations on how you should think, how you should behave and how you should speak. Yeah. And in a lower class community, if you express yourself with a broader vocabulary, then not only does this threaten people who don't know what you're talking about and this can trigger aggression in them, but also um, then, then it can bring you into conflict with people because in a lower class community, when people feel threatened, they don't just express revulsion, you know, they can get pretty hostile <laughs> and violent. Yeah, so yeah. so actually it was quite an oppressive experience for me because I had to learn to conceal certain aspects of myself. Mm -hmm. But then I started to gravitate kind of like, I, in my head I kind of call it across a river. You know, the west end of the city is across the river in Glasgow. Mm -hmm. So it's not a train track, it's literally a river that divides people, do you know? Yeah. And I always find myself going across that bridge and then back over. And, uh, and 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 one of the things that I, I liked about the the um, the more kind of affluent communities was the fact that it felt calmer. People dressed differently. They, they I mean, people seem to be expressing their individuality through every facet available to them, yeah. whether it be fashion, whether it be how they talked, whether it be what they read. Um, whereas there was a very uniform way of dressing and a very uniform way of speaking in the community that I came from. Mm -hmm. And if you deviated from that, then you were inviting hostility and confrontation. Um, so really, for me, like, it, it, it's forced me to be... Um, it's forced me, in a way, to... to not say that I don't care because I do care about what people think because I'm human, but it's forced me to kind of have more of a lack of concern for what people think because in that position that I'm describing, there's nobody that, that you can please and there's nowhere uh, that you really belong yeah. because you're always sort of seen on the outside of stuff. Uh, so it's been kind of like formative for me, I think, yeah. and has actually made me probably a, a bit more... Uh, broader in my horizons, mm -hmm. able to integrate multiple ways of looking at things into my own viewpoint. Yeah. So I'm able to understand where a lot of people are coming from as opposed to just assuming their intentions based on where they've come from socially. Mm -hmm. um, so so I think in that sense it's made me like, I don't know, um, it's made me a better person yes. or certainly a more useful person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, useful, I like mm. it. <laughs> Um, so, like your your lexicon, um, it's 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 not something that's inherent. It's something that's learned and developed. Mm. How have you trained yourself to to have this? It's interesting. I, I, I'm often asked that question, 
and, and, and my, my instinctive response since the very first time I was asked it by a BBC producer when I was in my late teens was, why shouldn't I speak like this? Okay. You know, like, <laughs> these are my words. Um, you know, why shouldn't I speak like this? Why shouldn't I have a very rich and broad kind of like linguistic tapestry yeah. at my disposal? Yes. Um, <laughs> but then obviously that's because I'm having an instinctive reaction of feeling inferior. Yes, which like is it's rooted. a criticism when it is. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So on one hand, I'm like, well, why shouldn't I fucking talk like this? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> what, what do you think of me? And then on the other hand, it's just a question that I should just engage with. Uh-huh. So I learned really from listening to other people talk. Um, I, I was interested in words, obviously. Uh, who knows why? But I just had a passion for words ever since I was a kid. And I used to correct my mother's grammar at a very young age. And this would frustrate her because she was felt insecure about being pulled up about these things. Yeah. So that was one of the many areas of tension between me and her when I was a child. And obviously, as soon as I realised that the way that I spoke, the story that I had to tell and the way that I told it kind of like attracted attention or there was a certain prestige attached to it or that it led to opportunities, then it became in my interests to broaden and deepen my understanding of words because ultimately these were like tools for me to use to manufacture things, Uh to create opportunities. And, And as time went on, then I found actually that I had great difficulty reading which is one of the kind of paradoxes for me is this ability to talk well and, 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 and have kind of access to a vocabulary that perhaps suggests that I'm more well read than I really am. And, and so like that's for me quite interesting, but actually it's through listening to clever people talk or people that think they're clever talk <laughs> uh, and learn to understand what they mean when they discuss things and particularly debate. And I found mm-hmm. this, actually what happened was uh, later on in my life, when I uh, developed a bit of a drink problem, and I started going to recovery meetings, and 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 the subject of God started to come up in recovery, you know, twelve-step recovery programs, God is almost used as a metaphor for those unknowable aspects of life that you just need to have faith in and trust the process of living mm-hmm. and don't agonise over stuff. You know, God is kind of is a way to plug into something outside yourself and be less egocentric. Yeah. I didn't understand that at the time, though. I didn't know the mechanism of it. So God, I had prejudice to that word. I grew up in a community torn apart by religious sectarianism and violence. Yeah. And so God was something that I cringed at. So this started me, for me, started a sort of investigation into atheism as not just a belief, but as a practical kind of way to understand the world and so this led me towards uh, people like Christopher Hitchens on YouTube and then the new atheist movement became my kind of algorithm that I was in for a while as I continued to drink. So obviously by listening to people like Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris, Uh um, what I learned was I was less interested in what they were talking about and more interested in the words they were using (laughs) because there were so many new words being used in so many new contexts and actually it was like listening to music when I heard them speak then obviously I started to understand what they meant then I was like hang on this is like a whole new realm of thinking that I haven't even considered yeah so I I, I began to sort of my, my horizons intellectually began to broaden as well and then obviously 
when these guys are talking about stuff, they're referencing other writers or other intellectuals, and then you're kind of going and doing your nosy on YouTube about them as well. So suddenly, like, your whole palette is broadening, and you're learning new words, and you're learning new concepts, and your your uh, framework for um, perceiving the world begins to expand. Yeah. And 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 that, funnily enough, as much as I was drinking and there was a lot of problems going on, that was a period of real growth for me that would come into play and my sobriety. Mm-hmm. So, so it was really through that, it was really through listening to people talk, listening to people um, kind of, uh, I don't know, what would you say, the interpenetration of opposites. When people discuss <laughs> the matter and they scrutinise it and they say, oh, you've said this, but what about this? And then they say, aye, but what about this? <laughs> so you start to understand the duality of things and not just your own sort of monoculture, <laughs> which for me obviously was the left and the radical left and yes. socialism and Tommy Sheridan and the Labour Party. And I didn't, and everything else outside of that was um, scum, evil, bad. Uh, and, and this forced me to confront some of that stuff, or at least it was the beginning of me confronting some of that stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, we spoke about this before as well, the book The Righteous Mind, mm. which talks about uh, the way in which religion and politics does divide people, but by having this greater or higher level understanding, you can form a far better view of things. Uh, certainly, I mean that was that that's been a very influential book for certainly for me in the last couple of years. Um, again, it was it was because of YouTube that I came across this guy, uh, Jonathan Hyde, and he is a psychologist working in America. And he he basically he started out on the left. He he was a liberal. He you know conformed to the usual tropes of that outlook that you would expect. You know mm-hmm. like welfare state and no foreign interventions and um, and you know that don't say bad things about the poor and things like that that you would expect. You know don't don't uh, and, and, and don't. Don't speak ill of any of the protected groups. We can't discuss certain things because it could offend people or upset people. Mm-hmm. And uh, all, all things that you can understand the reasoning for. He started off on that, but then actually as he began to sort of develop and mature, um, then he started to find some of these new concepts that were coming into play difficult to reconcile with his own beliefs. Because he obviously seen things like free speech and uh, as really the sort of foundation of everything else, yeah. especially particularly in our society. Mm-hmm. It's easy to become accustomed to free speech and it's easy to sort of almost have no gratitude for what's at stake when you start to put restrictions on speech. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think for him, I, 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 that was reflected across the left at that time. Yeah. And he really wrote this book that encapsulated that why is it that we find it difficult to talk to each other when we come from different parts? And what he actually found was that as much as our world is complex and it reflects our sophistication as a species in terms of technology and culture, in truth, we haven't evolved terribly much since we were forming our first tribal societies. And that the way that we perceive the world, the way that we perceive the people that we disagree with, is as much a product of our own tribal nature uh, and our limitations as mm-hmm. human beings that haven't evolved or have no insight into how our minds work, yeah. as, it, as it is about our own integrity. And then I started to realise actually my beliefs are a product as much of where I was born 
and I've inherited them yep. and I'm walking around wearing them like a badge regardless of how um, frayed or ugly they become and 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 what is the function of this <laughs> um, and and you know like for me like that just started to raise more questions mm-hmm. and, and, and particularly after the independence referendum when I was very had a very fixed view of the world, a very fixed view that the Yes movement was a moral force and a radical force. And actually, when I looked behind the curtain of the Yes campaign, then it was a bit like the Wizard of Oz. You know, there were lots of parts of the Yes movement for different types of people to intersect with and interface with. Mm-hmm. So everyone was intersecting with a specific part of it and they mistook that part for the whole movement. When actually it was a really broad church of folk including conservative-minded people. Yeah. And actually, like, once the result came in, then I had a choice to offence myself off from all the people that voted no and make big assumptions about why they voted no, or they accept that actually I misread this. I thought everyone was going to vote yes, and I thought there was some kind of revolution coming. And actually what we have is a sort of really kind of like middle-of-the-road, thematically centralised um, attempt to really just appropriate political power for a, for a middle class up here <laughs> as opposed to anything else, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. And, and then I was sort of, for me, I was quite disillusioned and angry. I still believe in independence, but the quality of that belief and the degree of that belief has changed. And, uh, and, and running parallel with that is this learning journey for me about learning to understand other ways of seeing the world and learning to appreciate other people's experience and how that informs their moral logic and where they're coming from and this actually for me kind of reduces feelings of anger reduces feelings of resentment and reduces feelings of actual kind of like stress and sometimes existential dread that a lot of people on the left allow to make them ill <laughs> you yeah. know like yeah. um, and, and, and a lot of people in working class communities allow to make them ill because it's not just about accepting it's not just about saying the world's hard it's about saying there's all these people that have got it against me. There's all these people that want me, like, out the picture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And for me, I found actually, like, grappling with the complexity of where opposing people are coming from mm-hmm. is actually quite fun. You know, it's quite fun and, and it's something that I've got in a habit of now. Mm-hmm. Where do you think you sit on the political spectrum now? I mean, I'm... I'm, I'm I can't divorce myself like emotionally and at a deeper level from working class communities. Whenever a politician pitches a message to working class people, I'm magnetised by it instinctively, even if it's a conservative politician. But obviously I become mindful of that and I go, no, this is manipulative, scripted uh, political rhetoric. I've got the insight to understand that now. When (laughs) Theresa May became the Prime Minister, she made quite a kind of like, probably her only really impassioned speech, you know, um, in the beginning where she tried to sort of, she made a beeline for Labour voters essentially um, by uh, by talking about how things were, haven't been fair for people and people who work hard and uh, she was just sort of trying to capture the market yeah. essentially because Labour were in disarray and I remember just sitting like thinking, wow, this is quite impressive, I've never heard a Tory talking like this before and then I'm just like, snap out of it do you know what i mean snap out of it and i was like this is because she's deliberately pitching this 
Two people like me who vibrate on this frequency, as much as I hang around or I move in cultural circles or art circles and I'm surrounded constantly by well-educated and, to be honest, quite middle-class people, and that's the conversation that I'm always in, mm -hmm. I, oh, my heart beats in this other place and that's <laughs> what I gravitate towards and that's where yeah. my loyalty lies. And, and, uh, and so that's kind of, politically, that's led to a lot of confusion recently because mainstream parties are always trying to appeal to people with my sensibility. Yeah. But at the same time, they're always selling us out further down the line. Once they've appropriated our, uh, 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 once they've appropriated what we can offer them electorally, then, then our apathy's factored into the future calculations that they make, you know what I mean? So yeah. if you take the SNP, for example, um, you know, once they became the big party up here, suddenly reforming council tax wasn't that big a deal, suddenly the 50p tax rate, suddenly they were like, oh no, that's more complicated than we thought, you know. Why is it no more complicated when you're making moral arguments in London <laughs> about why people should do it? Mm. You know, that's what I don't understand. It's like, with the SNP, it seems like they moralise a lot on the issues that they're not responsible for. Um, but in the Scottish Parliament, when you've got Kezia Dugdale making moral arguments about how much to pay nurses, or you've got um, or you've got the Liberal Democrats making moral arguments about how much is funding goes into our mental health services, mm -hmm. suddenly the SNP are like, oh no, but it's a bit more complicated. You know, it's a bit more complicated. Oh no, but here's a strong moral argument about putting more money into colleges. You know, because that's uh, where a lot of working class kids end up going to try and upskill themselves after long periods of unemployment. Yeah. Oh no, but that's more complicated. But then you've got Angus Robertson in London and he's just yeah. like, he's just this kind of automated machine gun of of sanctimony, quite frankly. <laughs> and, and, and I'm like, it's either one or the other. You know, like, yeah. I can very clearly see them playing to two different crowds and wearing two different hats mm -hmm. and really kind of like having this bipolarity about them almost, <laughs> where on one hand, they want everyone to appreciate the dilemmas that they've got as a government up here, mm -hmm. but down in London, then it's very black and white, isn't it? Yeah. No nuclear weapons, no foreign interventions, and suddenly everything... Uh, the complexity is kind of evacuated out of everything. Mm -hmm. The reason I don't like that is because I think that's treating the electorate stupid. You know, I feel like the electorate deserves to be... Um, I feel like there's more complexity to things and if you want to create a new country, then you, you want to treat the population with a bit of respect. Yeah. And I feel like that kind of moralising or the platitudes and the rhetoric and all of that. Like, I thought the SNP were going to offer something of a higher quality. Mm -hmm. The SNP proposed creating a morally divergent society mm -hmm. in Scotland after we were independent. It was a moral case before everybody became an armchair political strategist after that, right? That's what it was. And in order to create a morally divergent society, you need to have a morally divergent political culture. Mm -hmm. that foregoes some of the awful tropes of uh, spinning things, of, of being dishonest about things, and of, of really oversimplifying things uh, for the population, when really, if we got any of the complexity of stuff a wee bit more, then maybe we would appreciate where our politicians are coming from yeah. and the dilemmas that they have. Yeah. And so, like, this kind of, like, 
this sort of playing to one crowd up in Scotland and playing to a different crowd down in London or on TV debates, like, mm -hmm. I don't know, for me it just seems a bit superficial. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, what, coming from your background, obviously you've got insight into it, but what do you think might be a, a proposed solution or solutions to improving social deprivation and improving areas like, I mean, Pollock? Mm, well, first of all, the... The quality of the debate around the issue of poverty is is, is atrocious mm -hmm. and it's partly because of issues being oversimplified by political leaders appealing to their own tribes uh, and, and, and ways that are specific to them. Mm -hmm. Actually, an issue like poverty would require broad consensus across not just the political realm, but the third sector, business, uh, right across society, including obviously just the civilian population, mm -hmm. because uh, because the, the the issue, there's so many facets to it that if you truly wanted to address why people are poor, why people continue to be poor, yeah. social immobility, yeah. then it would mean all of us asking ourselves really difficult questions. Hmm. Um, no politician wants to ask the electorate difficult questions like, how much tax would you be prepared to pay in the front end of solving this problem? Mm -hmm. And how much would you be prepared to honestly look at your own life and your own thinking processes as maybe being one of the constituent parts of your circumstances? On the left, this is a very, very controversial area. Uh, but in truth, the, 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 this is one of the domains that need to be looked at in terms of the poverty experience. Mm -hmm. And I'll explain why. One of the big areas where inequality expresses itself is in people's emotional capacity to absorb stressful events. If you live in a poorer community, the incidents of stress are more numerous. Mm -hmm. Not only that, but if you grew up in a household where there was a lot of stressed out people, then you're predisposed to stress. So you're in a state of hypervigilance, which affects how you perceive the world, it affects your lifestyle, how you eat, how you drink, mm -hmm. how you learn, all of these things that contribute to what you would call poverty. Now, if you live in those circumstances, it's true to say that they are in many ways being triggered by the external social environment, but it's also true to say that even if we did all bang our heads together and come up with a way to improve the social environment, we wouldn't be able to change how it's affected the people that are living now. Yeah. And so that offers them nothing. What offers people who live in poverty now something mm -hmm. is an honest admission about the fact that we within ourselves as human beings in the right circumstances can learn how to manage our own stress and learn how to manage our own emotions and that this doesn't require vast sums of money. And so it's kind of two-pronged in that sense. Yes, of course, you do deal with the social conditions and how you would improve them and, and, and what how welfare plays a role in alleviating some of the more extreme circumstances that people experience. But also you have this other prong that says, running parallel to all of that is, um, you know, look honestly at your life. Look honestly and see what's within your own competence mm -hmm. to address within your own life. Mm -hmm. Because I know from my own experience of being homeless, of being an alcoholic, of being a drug addict, of being someone who at one point was on disability living allowance, right? Um, 
the system was bending over backwards to accommodate me and I wasn't ready. And I wasn't ready to accept I was an alcoholic. So I spun all sorts of yarns to uh, continue drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, for me, at the root of a lot of my problems in the end, despite the fact they might have originated in a dysfunctional family, uh, was dishonest thinking. Was an externalisation of blame for everything in my life. And while there might have been some truth in that, and certainly some catharsis in that, ultimately, my life began to improve when I started taking responsibility for how I felt, for my circumstances, mm-hmm. um, for, the, for the harm that I'd caused in my life, for the lies that I'd told in my life. And, and, I, and I certainly see a lot of people uh, who live the way that I lived and who would probably benefit from, um, from, from, from casting a critical eye into their own uh, their own inner world yeah. as well as the external world Absolutely. and for me you know that's partly what the left needs to reapprehend because uh, we're not really offering a lot of hope to people by saying no your circumstances are going to stay the same until we redesign this whole society they're <laughs> yeah. not going to do that in their lifetime no no chance so it's like, what can we do now? Yes. What can we do now? What we can do now is we can recognise the role stress plays in people's lives, how they manage it, and have a conversation about how to to, to start dealing with that in our own life. Yeah, yeah. How, how have you been able to overcome addiction and, and some of the, the problems that we've had? Well, it was a long journey. Um, you First of all, you, you know that I knew I, w- I was in trouble very early on. I remember buying alcohol just to have it in the house. It wasn't long after I started living, funnily enough, in a so- supported accommodation project. So this was a public service, you know, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. had been set up in order to uh, stop me from falling to the very bottom of society. Uh, but I have a belief that I was actually referred there because the psychologist who I was dealing with at the time foreseen that my life was going to spin out of control. So predictable. It is that people who come from that kind of background run into these sort of problems later mm-hmm. around social exclusion, around um, addiction, around homelessness, or, uh, things around child abuse. These are all interconnected. Mm-hmm. So there I was, and I remember that being the first time that I bought alcohol just to have it in the house. And I remember thinking, this is odd. And then as, he, as, as time went on, I started drinking more. I was introduced to drugs like ecstasy, uh, cocaine, and then later downers like Valium and, uh, and, and diazepam, which is Valium, and, 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 and other variants basically of opioid, opiates, yeah, you know? Yeah. So they're all in the heroin family. Uh, so that's kind of where my life was heading. My mum, she, she, she loved a bit of heroin in her day. So it's it's funny. There's a kind of there's a there's a sort of there's a predictability about how things can turn out depending on your own upbringing mm-hmm. if the circumstances are right. Mm-hmm. So if people aren't socially mobile, they're in the same circumstances as their messed up parents were. So they develop the same way as their messed up parents. Before I knew it, I was an alcoholic and a drug addict. And uh, one day I decided I was going to stop, and I had to stop. Then I realised I couldn't. And this was when I realised I was powerless over drugs and alcohol. And uh, not only that, I was powerless over them, but I couldn't think honestly about them. So 
I began to go on a recovery program. I had a sponsor that did all of that. I relapsed all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, there was bits about it that I couldn't accept. You know, um, I couldn't accept that it was. Uh, I couldn't accept that I could no longer blame anyone else for why I drank. I couldn't accept. Didn't seem fair. Mm -hmm. All the things I've been through. My mum pulled a knife on me and said she was going to kill me. Like, how can you say that it's my fault that I drink? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I was resistant to all of it, you know, as a lot of addicts are and a lot of alcoholics are. And to be fair, a lot of non-alcoholics would be too, but they can get away with it because they're not alcoholics. For me, then every relapse meant returning to more serious drinking, which meant more serious incidents of chaos in my life. Mm -hmm. At one point, I just couldn't go out anywhere without a, a violent incident happening. If I, if I wasn't involved in it, I was, I was at the centre of some aggression that, created violence for other people um, I, I, because I just I, I, I was just kind of unhinged in that way I was confrontational I was arrogant I was uh, braggadocia I was basically constructing a very unlikable personality in order to uh, because I was so worried about people not liking me you know that yeah. I was going to all these lengths to be liked and actually I was just creating so much friction in my community whether it be the music community or wherever I went really um, and I was off my nut, you know, I was off my nut. Yeah. And, and, and so when you go into recovery, then once you sort of stop drinking and you sort of stabilise in terms of you've worked the alcohol out your system, you're not dealing with withdrawal, you're, the fogginess kind of moves away. Mm -hmm. Suddenly you're like, all right, okay, so this is my life now. I have no money. My partner's left me. She's away in Australia. She doesn't want to know me. Mm. I, 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 I have no job and actually everything that I thought was going on in my life wasn't and I was just in a drunken delusion. Um, so at that moment you got a choice really. You can go and lift a drink and go back into the delusion or you can start to learn how to uh, reimagine a way to live that means you don't need to rely on alcohol to cope with stress. Yeah. And that meant, that meant not looking at society and radically wanting to change that. Yeah. That meant radically overhauling everything about myself, hmm. uh, to my lifestyle, to how I thought. And right at the centre of it is this belief that I am usually at the core of whatever problem it is that I'm experiencing on some level. Mm -hmm. It's me, it's an expectation I've got, it's an assumption that I'm making, it's, um, it's, it's a resentment that I'm acting on under false pretenses. It's because I feel uh, emotionally threatened yeah. or even sexually threatened. There's jealousy at play. And then I started to realise how like all of these primitive emotions were governing all of my uh, behaviour and in many ways uh, were the root of a lot of false beliefs that I had adopted at a younger age that extended into my political beliefs. And I started to go, hang on, I've constructed this really kind of like a character almost and 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 actually like at the core of it all is uh, is a fear of rejection at the core of it all is a fear of as uh, a belief that i'm excluded and a belief that no one likes me and that i'm in danger and that these beliefs were formed when i was a child and what happened was i grew up i started drinking i didn't I didn't mature, 
And I looked in the mirror and I saw what looked like a young man. So I didn't realise actually I was just a kid. Nah, I hadn't really grown up. Mm -hmm. Nobody had showed me how to grow up. Mm -hmm. And you know, it, it, it was a big kind of moment for me because uh, it was empowering in a way as much as it was quite like confusing. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I had been raised to, to attribute and ascribe blame for uh, how I felt and how I lived to my poverty, which was blamed on the society. <laughs> and in some ways that's kind of true, but it's not the whole story. Mm -hmm. The whole story's more complicated. And I realised actually like that uh, there came a point where it was me that was perpetuating the difficulties. It was yeah. me that was refusing to take action in a number of areas of my life. Mm -hmm. uh, it was me who was being dishonest. And it was me ultimately who developed a sense of entitlement to feel happy all the time and feel free of fear all the time. Mm -hmm. That, that uh, first of all, was unrealistic. And second of all, became the engine room of a very dangerous lifestyle, which was about really like numbing myself to reality. Absolutely, yeah, it, it's funny. There's a Russell Brand quote that I absolutely love, which is, you know, he talks about when he had his difficulties with drugs and alcohol. And I think I've referenced this before. He says, drugs and alcohol were never the problem. Reality was the problem. Drugs and alcohol were the solution. And it sounds as though you went through a, a significant, what I would consider to be a shift in consciousness or awareness from, I suppose, the victim mentality mm. to being able to actually look at yourself objectively and realize what you're actually, you know, what your behaviors are, how you are. But to people who are, you know, like you maybe 10 years ago, how would you encourage them? How would you suggest that they mm. escape that way of thinking well that's one first of all like just to pick up on the point of the sort of the victim mentality mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that i learned through recovery um and just through maturity was that a lot of how i perceived myself to have been slighted or mistreated or neglected or abused well a lot of that did happen and a lot of it was true mm -hmm. one of the reasons why it hurt so much is because i made an assumption that the people who done it were operating off of perfect knowledge and I made an assumption that they were operating off of like a full range of emotional responses that they, they, they had at, at their disposal, but they chose to be wicked or they chose to be mean or they chose to be cruel. Yeah. Of course, when I descended into my own uh, kind of like spiritual dereliction, then then suddenly there was a complex reason for why I was behaving this way and I always afforded myself a lot of room to make mistakes. <laughs> I started to realise there was a bit of an inverse relationship between the two. On one hand, I was holding other people who had mistreated me to an extremely high standard and holding society to an extremely high standard. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I needed everyone to understand that, you know, my life was dead complicated, you know, and it was a reason why I was a bit of a dick and it was a reason why I was a dick to you and it was a reason why I stole that money off you and it was a reason why, you know, and suddenly yeah. I'm like, hang on, actually, that's a load of shit, you know what I mean? <laughs> really, I'm a hypocrite. Yeah, you know, and yeah, if yeah. I'm going to afford myself uh, the compassion to, to to really like acknowledge where I went wrong, but forgive myself, make amends and move on, mm -hmm. then I have to be prepared to, to, to project that out the way as well. And that includes the people in my life and that includes the society that I live in as well. Mm -hmm. um, so, so certainly that's uh, just, I felt like that was worth saying. The other thing is that just because I have come to this understanding doesn't mean I can then go back and superimpose it on the other people who are 10 years behind me. Uh, 
the compassion needs to extend to the fact that people aren't where you are. And that is where it really begins to become a practical way of living, where you can be where you are and you can transmit a signal about how you got there. But you have to try to the best of your ability to accept where other people haven't yet gone through the experience which has affected them in a profound way that has affected you and me never. They mm -hmm. might go in another direction yeah. just as, as important to them. Mm -hmm. one, one sort of like example of what I mean perhaps is, is uh, when, I, when I was young and I started drinking, I started experiencing a lot of mental health problems and, and I probably would have experienced mental health problems anyway regardless of, of drinking. And it's certainly true to say that maybe I began to self-soothe because of mental problems or emotional problems. But at some point, actually, the depression that I was feeling, the mental illness that I felt that I was suffering from and was diagnosed with, was actually as a result of my poor lifestyle as much as the trauma that I had experienced as a kid. Because mm -hmm. what I, I noticed was that, you know, I was presenting at the doctor with symptoms of mental illness, such as hearing voices, hallucinating, um, of, 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 of being paralysed in my sleep, and really vivid nightmares coming to life mm -hmm. in my bedroom. And I would present to the doctor with these symptoms and they would send me to neuro-linguistic programmers, cognitive behavioural therapists, clinical psychiatrists, child psychologists. Please. No one asked me how much I was drinking. No one asked me, the system wasn't designed to even consider that that might have been a problem. At this point, I was not even aware of the fact that I was drinking and using to the extent it was affecting me. I wasn't trying to conceal it. Mm -hmm. I hadn't even become aware of the fact that I was mad with all the time. I just thought I was young and I was living it up and I thought if I feel hangover or I'm out my nut, it's because I've got mental health problems. And actually, it was the reverse. Yeah. So vast resources were deployed in order to get to the bottom of why I felt low in energy, low in mood, depressed, reclusive, unless I was out my nut, why I was hallucinating, why I didn't eat a lot. And actually, these were all symptoms of alcoholism. These were all things that happen when you drink too much. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and actually, this sort of this kind of weird blind spot in the system and yeah. this weird blind spot in me allowed me to, to, to sort of create a, a fantasy that I was a helpless mentally ill person and that I was just going to keep drinking until we all got to the bottom of what was wrong with me. And actually it prolonged my drinking for years and actually like deepened my delusion and added more layers of false beliefs about why I drank, how Jeez. much of a role drink was playing. And so it created a big diversion for me. Um, now I'm, I've walked away from antidepressants, I've walked away from a, per, from a diagnosis of a personality disorder, I've walked away from all of these things. Mm -hmm. But it would be really unfair of me to then walk into a doctor's surgery where someone's going to get their health, mental health problems dealt with and say, aye, well you drink too much. You know, you don't need these antidepressants. Mm -hmm. You have no thought about your drinking. Like, that's not a responsible way to behave and that's not a fair way to behave. As much as I know in myself that was the truth for me, it was a journey. And, and often, in order for people to really recover, 
they have to have exhausted all the other options available to them and realise the only option left is to look in the mirror and take responsibility. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Jeez, y your answers are phenomenal, you know. I just I'm glad you think so because in my <laughs> head I'm like, you're talking shit. You're talking <laughs> no, shit. No, genuinely, it's, it's, you know, you're, you're an unbelievably fascinating person. Mm. Um, it's, it's great to, to listen to you talk. She'd tell you my know? girlfriend sometimes, yeah. man, she seems a bit bored of me. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, this is maybe something that you've been asked quite a lot, I suspect it probably is, but in terms of um, the creative process in, you know, whether it's making music or mm. writing, you know, how do you come up with stuff? <laughs> Where do you come up with your content? Um, well, it's kind of, it's changed over the years. When I was younger, I used to write a lot of things in one sitting. You know? Yeah, really. So, I mean, I don't know if that was just a kind of part of my my the sort of youthful energy, or if I had more, I was really a lot more impulsive. Mm -hmm. But I used to be able to just sit and write a verse and have a concept and just go for it and do it dead quickly to quite a high standard. Um, but as the years have gone on, then I've be the, the way the ideas I'm trying to express are, are more complex. I've got more perspectives. While I usually write from a first-person perspective and talk from a first-person perspective, mm -hmm. at the same time, it's there's a lot of other things informing that. And so in order to reflect that in my music, then that takes a lot more time. So for me, it's very much about uh, being in a certain mindset where I begin to observe things around me that have a deeper meaning, you know what I mean? And it can be stupid things. It can be just like, obviously it can be like almost kind of a, a unrelated observations. I collect the ideas uh, and then a theme kind of emerges from them, you know, so um, like, I mean, what was happening? There was, there was something on the bus earlier on. Can't even remember what it was. And and, uh, and, I, and I just bring out the phone and just open up the app to write on the thing, you know, and write down what it is. Yeah, Coffee, yeah. that's what it was, right? So, like, because I don't drink anymore, then a lot of the, 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 the metaphors I find in life are non-drink related, you know what I mean? Uh, and and, and uh, I started coming up with this idea of uh, flirting with uh, baristas, right? So, which happens on occasion, right, because they're flirty, because it gets them through their day and the tips are good, or else sometimes maybe they are just genuinely flirting with you, right? <laughs> so either way, like, 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 there's a lot to unpack yeah. in these little seemingly inconsequential interactions, such as when you go into the shop and you're going to your regular coffee place, but you've been to another coffee place and you've forgotten to discard the cup from the place that you've went before you come to your regular place. Yeah. And suddenly, like, you're so loyal to this coffee place that you go to every day. You're like, you feel almost like you've betrayed them. And you kind of want to underplay the fact that you've been somewhere else for coffee. <laughs> right, so there's that aspect. And then, and then obviously, like, once you order your coffee, uh, the, 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 they'll ask you, uh, do you want to sit in or do you want to take it away? And I find, that that is kind of putting me on the spot because I'm not ready to make that kind of commitment. You know what I mean? So yeah, I'm like, yeah. I want to get a takeaway cup, but I also want to sit in in case I decide to do a runner. And suddenly, obviously, then you, you go, actually, there's a lot of interesting stuff here about buying a coffee. 
and 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 a relationship dynamic, you know what I mean? And then you get that noted, and you're like, and that could become a song or something, an yeah. observation about about I don't know, sex or coffee or gender relations or something. And and it might not, it might come to nothing, you know. But just like I get into a mind state, I get into a mindset where like I'm really receptive to everything that's going on. I can see deeper things at play. Mm-hmm. One of the difficulties though is when everything's in that early stage, whether it's a piece you're writing, whether it's music, it's very hard to express what's going on to anyone else because you're not sure what's going on yourself. <laughs> so like even the new, maybe I'm explaining things and in my head I'm quite excited about it, but sometimes I try to explain it to people and they just kind of look blank because they don't know how it all connects in your head, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So it's just like, it's, I, I became more reclusive in that sense, you know, like I try yeah. maybe not to sort of even share what I'm doing now until it's more fully formed because sometimes you get a real blank stare off someone and it can put you off, like developing something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when it's in that early stage and really it's only you and it knows what it means. Yeah. So yeah. I, that's my kind of, that's my process just now. I don't write in chronological order. I work on multiple things at the one time and I arrange them as it goes so the thing grows out of itself, you know what I mean? I don't mean to sound wanky, but that's really what it's like. That's the same with my album, that's the same with the book. You know, each chapter's interconnected, there's callbacks to things that happened previously, it all kind of like serves a function and has a coherent structure, uh-huh. but that's not the way I write it. You know, like the way <laughs> I write it is like, it starts off a real mess and I just have a loose idea of where I'm going with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then something sort of of emerges out of it. Yeah. Um, it's a lot of work though, doing uh-huh. it like that, because um, it's uh, multiple drafts of multiple things simultaneously can lead to a feeling of being overwhelmed. Yes. Really just kind of drowning in the words almost. Yeah. But it just, it just seems to be the way that I work just now, so you just need to go with it. Yeah, yeah. That's a really nice segue onto my next question. I feel obligated, you know, I have to kind of um, speak to you about your, your album that you recently launched, Trigger Warning, yep. and uh, your book that will be coming out, Poverty Safari. So mm. what can people expect from the album? How is it different to your other work and the, the book as well? Okay. Your first book. The, the album, I mean, I'm, I'm always grateful for the opportunity to talk about it, actually. Uh, the album is, it's basically an attempt to kind of distill what's going on just now uh, in terms of, well, not just in Scotland, uh, but in the West. Um, you know, the the issues around nationality, uh, globalisation, identity, mm-hmm. masculinity, um, all of these themes that we hear about that are normally discussed in separate uh, partitioned conversations that have certain types of people and, and and what I was trying to do was create an album that 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 condensed these things down the same way as a book would or a play would. So it's trying to take the idea of a concept album to another level of complexity where on one hand you can just listen to the album and you know there's a bunch of banging tracks and you can kind of nod along and, and, and find a lot of pleasure just engaging on that surface level mm-hmm. but for someone who wants to have repeat listens and really get into the album then what they'll find emerging from it if they listen to it a few times 
is that there's a plot and there's characters and there's a narrative and there's a world where events are happening that impact how the characters function and 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 really there's there's a lot more complexity to it than what you would expect from a hip hop album or mm -hmm. any kind of album. Yeah, yeah. I'm a fan of the kind of classic concept albums, things like The Wall or obviously other work by Pink Floyd and Roger Waters generally. Mm -hmm. And also things like Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds, which is perhaps seen as a bit less cool now. But I liked the the idea of that back then when I was a kid because you picked up the cover and you were already in because it was such a stark cover, you know, it was the Martians mm -hmm. moving towards London and then you put the vinyl on and there's this story that takes place that's being told through music and there's a plot and they're actually, the plot advances with each track. Mm -hmm. And so like I wanted to kind of, of attempt to do that and I had before with a previous album but I learned a lot and I had a deadline that meant I didn't complete it to the standard that I was hoping to. So really I kind of circled back round and mm -hmm. tried to create almost a prequel to that album oh, really? that also sort of like learned a lot of the lessons in terms of writing it. Yeah. So it deals with the story of a, a character kind of loosely based on myself obviously and and it's uh, and, and, and it, it's, it's an exploration of masculinity, nationalism, gender politics, uh, class obviously which mm -hmm. is at the heart of everything I do whether I like it or not. And uh, and and the reception that the album got was really overwhelming for me because I wrote it for the people that I know are going to listen to it, you know. Like, I didn't have any pretensions about the album doing well, um, like, in terms of, like, being, like, wildly successful. I don't have the resources to even try to make that happen. I made it for a few hundred people that I know are waiting for it and I know I'm really going to listen to it and really going to enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And I really thought about them when I was writing it. And it's really for them. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really for them. And see, one, see, once you, see, when you, see when you know your audience yeah, for a certain yeah. piece of work, <laughs> then it really whittles everything down because you don't have to worry about radio and you don't have to worry about where they play this in a festival and you don't have to worry about the other people in your band and a manager and all of that shit. <laughs> That's great for other artists, not for me, mm -hmm. right? Not for me. And and so I'm thinking about the 200, 300 people who are looking forward to a Loki album and who are going to rinse it time and time again until they've listened and they know every single thing in it. And, 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 and I'm going to put every single thing I can, every single effort, every single talent I have, I'll deploy... Uh, in pursuit of pleasing them <laughs> and only them yeah. and if anyone else is interested cool you know what I mean but yeah. um, and like for me that was really liberating because uh -huh. I, I realised I wasn't trying to compete with anybody else exactly. I realised I, I was, was providing a service to people that give my music the time of day yeah. and that is just a lot of fun uh, yeah yeah it's mm. like the, the whole art of niching down knowing your, your audience yeah. 100% yep in terms of the book mm -hmm. then uh, well, the book actually has been in development for a couple of years. I had spoken to another publisher, I'd met with another publisher actually a couple of times and then it just sort of went dead and I just assumed either they weren't interested or maybe a couple of people up at the office just don't, they're not, they're not on board with the look stuff. <laughs> um, 
a lot of these a lot of these issues that my album's about they play out in real life in my real life you know what i mm -hmm. mean in terms of uh the constitutional stuff uh the the, the, the sort of stuff that the sort of i don't know where where class and gender kind of intersect mm -hmm. um a lot of these things uh, and then because I've got a social media presence, a lot of people draw conclusions about your true nature based on the content that you create. <laughs> so sometimes people just take a dislike to you, do you know what I mean? And sometimes I'm dislikable. Either way, Freight weren't interested in responding to my emails after a while, which is fair enough, I know that they're very busy. Mm -hmm. So my confidence was quite crushed after that because it took me a lot to even get in the mind frame when I could do a book. And then, uh, and then, and then a few people suggested um another publisher and that was when i started speaking to Luth press in edinburgh right. <laughs> and they just got the idea straight away to be fair though the idea was more f fully formed in my head when the opportunity with freight came up then really i didn't have a solid idea of what the book had to be but i knew i had to go and meet with them anyway so yeah. i can't be like oh wait till i come up with the idea first publisher i've ever spoke to you're really just kind of running along you know cap in hand like please give me an opportunity i don't even believe in myself please don't crush my confidence uh you know and then when i but i was a lot more prepared the second time round. yeah and 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 so then i began the process of working on the book and uh, I was advised to go for kind of public funding in order to like create the space and the time to really give it the, the effort that it needs. But that wasn't something I was interested in. Um, you know, I come from a community where we're very skeptical of public bodies, public funding bodies, culture, arts generally, mm -hmm. um, uh, and see it as a bit of a gravy train sometimes. Sometimes that's not fair. You know, sometimes that's wrong, mm -hmm. uh, but sometimes it's not wrong. And so I never feel entitled to public funds. I never feel that I'm entitled to ask Creative Scotland for money to write a book. Um, one, because I, I don't have an assumption that it has any wider public good other than to provide me something to do and maybe a possible career opportunity at the end of it. <laughs> um, and second, I'm in a position where I can do the book without money if I need to. And I feel like public funding should be there for people who don't have those opportunities. So it's this weird inversion where people more privileged than me will go to Creative Scotland to get their books funded mm -hmm. because they feel entitled to it. <laughs> and I come from a community where we don't have anything and we wouldn't access those channels. And it's just weird. So I just said I was yeah. gonna do a crowdfund, which is a bit of a gamble. But it's basically me going to my audience and saying, I've given you a lot of free content through the years and and, uh, and and a lot of people keep on telling me to write a book. So I'm wondering if you'll back me to do this and I'll try and deliver the best possible book that I can come up with. Mm -hmm. And obviously uh, the, the, the gamble paid off because the crowdfund went really well and then that gave me six to eight months to, to work on the book yeah, and, 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 and really like it was a big relief. I'm sure the publisher at first when I said I was going to do a crowdfund probably thought you're off your nut, you know, you're off your nut like, but actually see when it actually started to like 
it became successful. Uh-huh. I was like, man, the publisher will probably be quite like chuffed now, yeah, you know, because there yeah. was a big buzz about it as well, and I had done pr- pretty much the first wave of promotion, uh-huh. where everyone knew the book was coming, you know, or at least the people that I'm trying to reach. Yes. And a lot of folk in media, you know, like a lot of folk in there's a lot of artists and folk in media that follow what I do, who are quite successful and have big followers. And even though I don't have that necessarily. Like it's you have an awareness of who's watching yeah. and how you can shape what you're doing so that it might go through their channels to a bigger audience. Yeah, definitely. You, you raised uh, off the top of my head, it was like twelve hundred, twelve twelve thousand seven hundred eighty-three pounds and some odd pence. I. And I believe that some of the funding, about 5k of it, came from J.K. Rowling. Aye, aye, that's Controversially. right. Controversially. Aye, aye, so and I found, I found that out through <laughs> Wings Over Scotland, uh, who had publicised it on his Twitter page. I woke up one morning, like every day I was getting up and I was looking, uh, the, 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 when you do a crowdfund, there's a kind of bar, there's a, le- like a gauge almost, like for each bit of funding you get, it goes up a wee bit. Uh-huh. And uh, every morning you get up and you look at it and you're like, some days you're up and some days you're down and you're like, because I mean, if you if you did a crowdfund like that and it didn't work, it would be hard not to be crushed by it. And obviously in a public sphere, it it, it, it would be quite humiliating. You know, it certainly would for me because mm-hmm. I, I know I can be quite egotistical and vain in that way. And, mm-hmm. I, and, and, and I would see it as, a, as an endorsement or a, or a condemnation depending on how it went yeah, you know yeah. so obviously it was a big risk because i knew that it would be difficult emotionally and um, so when it started to like show that it was working then it was quite exciting but obviously that that donation from someone like that like launches it into a different stratosphere because not only does everyone then have an opinion on it so everyone's talking about it so you meet your funding target a week and a half before the deadline, but also everyone has a strong opinion on it, and then suddenly you're like, ah, so this is quite stressful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, like I had obviously like up until that point had been expressing a lot of criticism of the SNP, mm-hmm. had been expressing, uh, had been talking honestly about my experience of the Yes movement, and as an artist or an artist with pretensions of being an artist, then then I feel like it's my duty to reflect honestly on this stuff. And what I found was that while I had assumed that's what the Yes Movement was for, and that was how we were going to be divergent from everything else that came before, actually there was no appetite for it. And I got pushed out and I had no access to channels. I was writing for Bella Caledonia and being hounded off of forums. Or sometimes actually, like depending on who I was writing for, my, I, feel, I started to get the feeling that my pieces were being deployed as clickbait because they created so many interactions and debate. Mm. And and uh, sometimes I would publish a piece and three people would write responses to it and it would create this big, I say big, it would create this tiny, tiny wee bit of excitement in an obscure corner of the internet in Scotland. <laughs> and ultimately, this was actually like what was... Um, you know, this was what was, or I began to think that that was why people were asking me to write for them and not necessarily because they had thought I had anything of value to say, mm-hmm. which obviously is not true. Mm. But I started thinking, hang on, every time I publish a piece, then I've got to deal with responses. 
that the publisher's publishing as well. And it's like, is my editor not supposed to protect me in some way from this stuff? Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, not from criticism, but almost like it was turning my, I was writing and I felt like my column was turning into like a Street Fighter tournament or something. And I just, I didn't like it, you know? Mm-hmm. So what the crowdfund really offered me was the opportunity to, um, t- to rise above that, you know? To, to create my own platform, to become my own person where I had a bit more choice in terms of a- what, what platforms I wanted to access, mm-hmm. not necessarily only accessing the ones that were available to me as a sort of, as a voice that had been vomited up in the Yes campaign. Because all my chat about poverty and all my activism and all the opinions I have, uh, that was all me before I knew about the independence movement. That was all me before. And my poverty story that I get accused of pimping now by people in the Yes movement or accused of selling poverty porn by people in the Yes movement. See, when I wrote my first piece that was published by National Collective about my alcoholism and used it as a parallel for why we should... Uh, take the leap and become independent, much like addicts take the leap and have faith mm-hmm. that they can live sober. Uh, the Yes Movement were eating it up. They loved it. And they loved it as evidence of the, the scourge of poverty and what it does to people. And, and, and they loved it because it was someone looking honestly at themselves and they hailed it as an example of a working class person transcending difficulties. But see the minute that you don't tell your story in service of someone's political agenda, then they cast you out, mm-hmm. and the thing that was of value to them, suddenly the polarity's reversed, yeah. and it becomes this thing that they beat you over the head with, and it becomes <laughs> this reason to mock you, and uh, so it just toughens you up, you know? It's not uh-huh. just in the Yes Movement, I've had that all my life, you know, wheeled out by organisations that, you know, that that, that that get a certain sort of cachet by being associated with someone who's been through what I've been through, whether it's charities or third sector organisations or or whoever, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And now here's the poor person with their testimony about being poor. Jesus and Christ. and then back over to us, the experts and the academics, and really you just become this thing from which political capital and narrative is extracted for other people to use, to empower themselves. And so people get a bit offended when you go stop the bus. I'm going to empower myself now. <laughs> and I've got my own agenda and I've got my own narrative and yeah. I can see what you're all doing. Uh-huh. People don't like that, you know, people don't like that. And it's the same, I, I see women talking about it. I see women having the same problem. I see ethnic, min- ethnic minorities having the same problem. Everyone comes at it from a different angle. They have a different experience. It's maybe specific to their identity. Mm. But really it's the same rubber feel that they have with the structures around them they started to realise actually the rules are different depending on who you are and what you want and and uh, and ultimately like for me I've learned that uh, that that um that I'm the one that's got to author my story and I'm the one that's got to author my life. Yeah. Uh, otherwise I'm gonna feel excluded, misrepresented. So so that's the journey that I'm on and, and and there's a lot of people that 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 are supportive of that and there's a lot of people that that for their own reasons are critical of it, and that's fair enough, I welcome that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's hugely empowering what you're doing, and kudos to you, I think it's fantastic. Ah, thanks man, I mean, it's, yeah. don't get me wrong, like, like sometimes maybe I, I, I like anyone, and I, and I need to be clear that I'm only saying this about myself because I believe other people are experiencing it. It's not yes. because I think my experience is significant. You know, and this is something I think like, 
it can maybe for some people it would come across self-important for me to talk about my experience as if who gives a fuck about it but I genuinely believe most people at a deeper level are similar to each other they're motivated by the same things yeah. they're frightened of the same things mm -hmm. and in this sort of public sphere where you've got a lot of pan rotating cast and pantheon of people telling you how to live and people telling you how to think there's not a lot of people saying this is what's going on under the boot of my car <laughs> I'm frightened I'm worried about the future I resent things I resent people I yeah. come from a certain background and this has given me a kind of narrow view of life uh, no working class obviously just any background sort of puts your perception filters on yeah so I don't say the things obviously because I think that there's any great insight or significance it's just because uh -huh. that's sort of thing I enjoy listening to other people talk about yeah honesty yeah truth about Absolutely. what's going on for them and yeah. not just always political platitudes and pretensions about the way things should be yes yeah because well, what what you are is is real. You're authentic and you're congruent. You're not in a in a world like the majority of people who are going through it with like seven layers of masks Aye. or playing the part of somebody that they feel as though they have to be because everyone's looking at them. Aye, I, I, that's <laughs> one of the reasons why I find the arts so frustrating just now, um, especially in the indie movement, because I thought that we were going to be the ones that created the radical art. And then when I started publishing artistic responses to the question of independence, mm -hmm. actually it was it was the Yes movement where I felt the most resistance and the most fear about how it would reflect on the campaign. And I was like, hang on a minute, one of my big motivations for voting Yes is because, uh, uh, it's because well, first of all, self-interest as an artist, the mm -hmm. hope of being a bigger fish in a smaller pond, not being seen as regional. Right. Yeah. Um, and then on the other hand, it was like, obviously, if we're the yes movement and we're a counterculture to this culture, where only a certain type of artist ascends and a certain type of art is publicised, then that means anything goes here, isn't it? Because we're the radical culture. When yeah. I realised actually that wasn't the case, then I started to push back quite heavily against that mm -hmm. because you know, like my convictions about, uh, and this isn't a pretension. My convictions about uh, the freedom to express anything that you feel is appropriate as an artist uh, is really, really strong and, and, and persistent mm -hmm. at the expense a lot of the time of other considerations to a fault. And, yeah. and, and, and as much as like back then when the Yes movement was kind of kicking about, someone like me really like didn't matter to anyone. A voice like mine was just like, you know, it was just part of like, people moaning or it was those mad lefties they don't get it we need to be pragmatic mm. but actually there's a real appetite now within the art artists communities for what I'm talking about and there's other artists that feel the same mm -hmm. and actually like there'll be there'll be a kind of pushback against a lot of things in the yes movement from artists mm -hmm. once once people start to wake up to the fact that uh, a lot of us didn't realize that our art and our creativity was being appropriated for a political party mm. and that's never where you want to be mm -mm. Um, and, and that, that's no, I don't say that, that I, I don't say that the SNP orchestrated that deliberately and I don't say that the Yes Movement uh, I, I don't say that the Yes Movement orchestrated that deliberately I say we all got caught up in this idea of ourselves a moral force mm -hmm. and, uh, 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 and, and didn't realise how closely aligned we became with what is ultimately the most powerful political party in our country. Hmm. And there's nothing countercultural about that, and there's nothing radical about that. Yeah, yeah.
Gee, okay. I mean, I've, I've, we've covered a huge amount, but I could honestly go on and just ask you questions all day. It's just, it's great to hear your views on stuff. But I've got really pressing questions, and obviously, the show being about um, encouraging people to align themselves with a, something greater than themselves, a purpose. Um, I'd really love to hear, you know, from your perspective, what do you feel is your purpose? Wow. Um, well, I mean, uh, now my purpose is to be a father. Yeah. Uh, my son was born. Um, my son was born in two thousand and sixteen, March two thousand and sixteen, uh, and 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 this has recalibrated all of my thinking and beliefs and refocused my mind. So you. You have a child and you immediately have something else other than yourself at the centre of your life. For someone like me, who can be quite susceptible to self-concern and be a bit preoccupied with my problems and what's going on with me, then then having a child is one of the best things that can happen mm -hmm. because it, 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 it really like is, it's a very, very palpable problem experience of knowing that you're not the most important person and you're not the most important thing and you're, what you need is no longer your primary concern. Obviously it's still in the mix and sometimes it'll come into conflict with what's required of being a father and there's always a tension between the two. Mm -hmm. But I, I've seen some examples of parenting in my life so I know what, what way I don't want to go. Yes. Yeah. And, and, uh, and that's great because it's a real focus. So ultimately, that's, that's, that's my purpose. Mm -hmm. How did I hold true to that? I hold true to that by holding myself to the same high standards as I hold everyone else. So if I'm pointing the finger at, I don't know, if I'm pointing the finger at this lot or I'm pointing the finger at this institution or I'm moaning about uh, the government or I'm, or I'm annoyed about this or that, then in the mix of all of that, I also need to be saying, you know, what part have I got to play in this? Uh, what part, uh, if I'm upset about what's going on in my life, like, like maybe I'm, maybe I'm, maybe I'm out of alignment. Maybe I'm expecting too much. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm being selfish, you know? Yeah. And so like, in order to stay true to my purpose as a father and be the highest possible version of myself, then mm -hmm. I need to be always on this learning journey, regardless of the tension it brings into my life. Cause you've got other people in your life that that um, that are on the periphery, you know, especially with social media and all that. Mm -hmm. We start to expect things of each other that maybe are unfair, or we start to think we know someone, and so when they change, we feel uh, slighted or we feel like they've betrayed us in some way. Mm -hmm. Certainly, come from a lower class community, uh, I know firsthand the, the the way that I've felt when I've seen people change or ascend in some way or leave the community mm -hmm. and taking a kind of adversarial posture towards them and 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 and, and while actually like underneath admiring them hmm. having to portray uh, that i see them as a sellout or that i see them as as, as having betrayed the community in some way um but actually I, I, even in the lower class communities the, the the most successful people were not the ones who uh were not the ones who had the most money or who got out of the community. 
the most successful people were the ones who could get along with everyone. Mm. And the most they were the ones that were most socially mobile. They were able to talk to a broader range of people, understand a broader range of subjects, and ultimately that this made them uh, attractive, which meant that that whoever they were around, they were affecting them by just this signal they were transmitting. Mm -hmm. And I've come across people like that in all social spheres and realised actually that it's something transcendent. It's something that you can become, it doesn't matter where you come from, mm -hmm. and that that becomes your values, and that you can detach from where you come from to a certain extent, and you can discard it almost as a sort of a precursor to what comes after, as an evolution, do you know what I mean? Yeah, the way we discarded yeah. our fur, or the way that we, you know, the way that we discarded other aspects as we evolved, like, and, 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 and it's not to say those things don't serve a purpose or there's no value in them, uh -huh. but you need to keep growing, and, and, and I feel like that's, that's my, and my purpose as a father is to keep growing in order not just to provide a stable, secure, safe, encouraging, nurturing environment for mm -hmm. my son and any other children that I might have, but also uh, because by, by creating that environment, he'll absorb that, he won't need to go through a lot of the pain I went through to get to that point. He'll need to go through his own pain. Yeah. And then he'll deal with his son when he's born. And that's how life goes. Hmm. But I guess it's all about advancing the interests of your family for the point that you're the steward of the direction yeah. of, of travel. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And just know that's me and my partner. So, so it's interesting, obviously, how having a a kid affects your political beliefs as well, because what I found was, uh, well, for one, uh, I, 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 before my son was born and when he was just born, I started to realise, first of all, that I didn't feel very safe in the sort of radical left conversation as I had before, mm -hmm. that I felt affinity with, uh, as the so-called identity politics began to get a lot more traction, and there was lots of different degrees of adherence to the tropes of it around safe spaces and trigger warnings and white privilege and stale pale males. <laughs> I started to realise actually I, I, I'm not one of the protected groups, you know, I'm the out group. So to this lot, I'm like a Tory, you know? <laughs> and yeah, I started to yeah. realise actually how frustrating it is when someone uh, says that you're more privileged than you are. And then I was like, that forced me to confront all the people that I call privileged or that I assume are privileged. Because as soon as someone's turning around to me and going like that, but you're a white male. And I'm like, how exactly does that make me privileged? Let me tell you about a wee bit about where I come from. I mean, yeah. even just for the course of this interview, some of the things I'll, I'll, I'll indicate, privilege is not the sort of thing you would associate with someone like me it's at a certain point in my life. But there you go, it's one of the kind of clumsy aspects of life and the <laughs> ideal left just now that, yeah. that, that George Orwell was moaning about 60 years ago, do you know what I mean? So, so, so for that reason, I started to feel unsafe on the radical left, because as I was trying to as honestly and sometimes clumsily and sometimes offensively uh, grapple with some of these ideas as they were coming up in a public domain, then actually uh, it brought me into a lot of really quite nasty, vindictive conflicts with people that normally I would be on the same side with. Mm. And for one, I didn't want to be the cause of any kind of toxic division, not purposely. And two, I didn't want to be coming to like, the wrong conclusions about people just because I disagree with them, or worse, just because they think I'm a bad person. 
Does that mean I need to think they're a bad person? So for example, like a blog came after me, a thousand flowers are called and they're a great blog. And they've done a lot of really important investigative journalism around uh, issues that affect people in the LGBT community, around issues that affect uh, ethnic minorities. Um, basically just a really like effective, uh, well-intentioned uh, uh, resource mm. for, for holding people to account. And I did a, a video about domestic abuse and part of the promotional campaign, I wrote, I wrote a column that reflected on some of the issues around that. And in the column there was a sentence, it was something like, you know, there may be, there may be issues in the relationship that a woman has to take responsibility for. And obviously this was in a wider context of an, art, an article, it was exploring the dysfunction in relationships that might be a precursor to violence. And so I, I perhaps hadn't been clear enough to make a distinction between a domestic violence scenario, a gender-based violence scenario, and the dysfunctional relationship before the violence starts. Mm. And, and what happened was this sentence was retweeted on social media by someone I would normally consider an ally, and it was reframed <laughs> as me blaming victims of domestic violence. And just when I thought that I had kind of like managed to create understanding at least around what I meant by that and acknowledge it was maybe clumsily worded, uh, then other revelations about the director of the domestic violence video came out because he had retweeted a men's rights activist called Erin Pizzi, who I didn't know and had no insight into MRAs and men's rights activists, not to the extent that I do now at least. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't realise actually I had been caught between two extremes in this conversation about identity politics and masculinity, and 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 because it was a, a because it was such a difficult period for all of us that were involved in the conflict, it's hard to know what's the right thing to do, mm -hmm. and and after that I realised actually I don't know if I can exist over here because not a lot of people come to your defence. Yeah. You're getting a lot of messages privately from people saying this is uh, this is unfair what's happening to you mm -hmm. and I know what you meant, what you said and I don't see how it's that bad uh, but ultimately, you know, some people were speculating that my partner and son weren't safe and that I was a dangerous person and because I was reacting with such exasperation yeah. on social media, this was then being reframed as aggression. So it was just like, I was just caught in this web of people on social media where it was just third parties that were just on a pylon. And the thing is, if I'm honest, I've taken part in that before against other people. Yeah. Suddenly I realise I don't want to be a part of that culture at all. And I'm going to find a constructive way to show that it's no use to anyone. Mm -hmm. uh, and this means acknowledging why a lot of the feminists that came after me came after me. And I understand the seriousness of the issue and I understand the seriousness of of when we misunderstand what drives domestic abuse or when we subtly make excuses for domestic abusers. Mm. Like, I understand that. I just hadn't been clear enough that I understood that and I had clumsily worded something. Mm -hmm. And this created the potential for a massive rupture in my life and the life of my family. And, and suddenly I was like, this aspect of the left that I had been talking about in theory as I was exploring identity politics was suddenly happening. <laughs> and there we were. Uh, so, so, so for that, I know it's a really long answer there, but for that reason I kind of like realise actually I'm not safe in this conversation anymore and that I need to move away from the radical left in some form. Yeah. My heart's there 
and I'll always do what I can to lend voice to uh, to use my platform to amplify some of that stuff that's going on. Yeah. But I'm not safe in that conversation. You know, everything in my life is at risk in that conversation uh, because the the impact that it had when those people in that blog, which I still read by the way, and I have a lot of respect for the people associated with it. I don't hate anyone, and I don't think they're dangerous. It's up to them what they think of me. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 people were trying to ruin my life. People were yes. trying to ruin my career. They were trying to attach certain toxic uh, ideas to who I was um, because they genuinely believed that I had to be shut down because I was presenting a direct danger to women by the ideas uh, that I was talking about. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, wow, this is really intense, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that it was actually the, the radical left itself. That that's that that's that's uh, that's created this exodus of people <laughs> <laughs> who are like, do you know what? Actually, man, that's a bit too intense for me. I'm not into that. Uh, so good on them. I've realised actually maybe I'm a wee bit older than some of the folk that are doing that, and it, that it's a trope of youth culture as well as a, of politics, yeah. and that they've every right to be as intense as they want. But I'm out. Um, so politically, that narrows a lot of my options. Uh, narrows me to to, to looking at uh, to. To, to, to not be in, being as indulgent as I was before because I have a son and actually like there are other interests that come into play mm-hmm. in terms of uh, protecting him, protecting yeah. his interests and protecting the stability that allows us to create prosperity in his life. Um, so so actually it's, it's an interesting time because here we have a whole range of parties that are saying that they're the ones that, that can better uh, facilitate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I distrust them all equally. Um, <laughs> so it's quite nice to not feel allied to a political party at the moment and just be taking elections on a kind of... Uh, the, the elections really are proxies for bigger struggles though, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, so, 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 you know, I voted Green uh, the last election because it was a single transferable vote system. And then uh, I, I'm torn between, obviously, the kind of... The, the promise of, of Corbyn, yeah. uh, as much as I know it won't work out like that. Um, I, I, and obviously my interest in Scottish independence, which I still really strongly believe in, really? which might not come across because people find it difficult to understand how someone could criticise the SNP and want an independence Scotland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So narrow the discussion gets. <laughs> yes. but, um, <laughs> so I need to think sensibly with the, the general election. Uh-huh. Because on one hand, if I vote Labour, I'm voting Scottish Labour, and it's Corbyn that's actually making them appealing, even though they don't like Corbyn. Yeah. It's just yeah. like, get your act together. So it, it might be <laughs> SNP for me at this election, just uh-huh. to be pragmatic about it. Yeah. But I, having a kid simplifies a lot of things for you, do you know what I mean? As yes. well, like you suddenly go, do you know what, actually, like, it's what's in these four walls that's my primary concern now. Yeah. And if you threaten that, or if I feel that you're threatening that, mm-hmm. then then a new range of solutions become available to me and a new range of possibilities become available to me mm-hmm. that maybe I wouldn't have considered before. Yeah, total, total shift in priority. Aye. Yeah. Whoa, good answer. <laughs> what would you like your legacy to be? This is a crazy question for someone like me. Uh, I don't know, like, because it's, it's like, it's, it, I don't even, I feel kind of almost embarrassed to answer because I don't want to, uh, I don't want to seem as if I'm, 
even feel that I have anything like that or I'm, I'm, I'm significant enough to have a legacy mm -hmm. like that. Uh, as a human being, like, I, I would just, I, I would just like to, um, I would just like to be an example for people who come from hardship uh, that you don't need a revolution of the society in order to find contentment and peace and mm. prosperity in your life. Um, that that by waiting for that, you're postponing the action you can take right now that will actually alleviate your suffering, alleviate your poverty, and also bring you more into alignment and gratitude for the society that you live in. Mm. Um, you know, when I look at my attitude towards my parents a lot in my life, what I see is a tendency to attribute any success I had to myself and my agency and my insight and my hard work and any failure or hardship to their upbringing <laughs> and the things that they done. Mm -hmm. And that is really juvenile and it's really delusional. Um, and actually it, it, it's both in both cases. And if I transcend my difficulties, that's because my parents, for the difficulties that we had, particularly my dad, and I haven't said this enough through the years, uh, instilled me with things, mm -hmm. instilled me with qualities, provided a security and opportunity for me to transcend difficulties further down the line. I might have forgotten that in my years of drinking where it's everyone's fault but yours. Um, or even if you're just a resentful, unhappy person and yeah. no necessarily an alcoholic. But, but that tendency to attribute any success I had to me and any hardship or, or difficulty I had to them, I think I mapped that onto society in a way mm. because society in very many ways became a paternal role mm -hmm. in my life, having accessed public services and professionals as well as obviously the convergence of my experience of poverty and the, the radical politics of my community, which mm -hmm. resulted in me becoming what I thought was a bit of a class warrior. Mm -hmm. I guess in some ways I am, uh, and I always will be. But at the same time, man, I'm trying to sidestep and avoid a lot of the cliches that come associated with it, yeah. because I feel like that there has to be an evolution of that form of politics as well, that acknowledges the role of personal agency and responsibility for our circumstances, as well as the external uh, scenarios that, that, and how they, the interplay between all of them. Mm -hmm. um, so so I, I, I guess, like, not so much a legacy, but I do things like this, partly out of vanity, partly to promote something, but also <laughs> because I know there's people watching and I know they're going to go like that. Hi, man. I see uh, that applies to me, what he said there. Or I experience that same feeling he's talking about there, and, and and hopefully I might do for them in some small way what other people have done for me by ultimately like doing what I'm doing now. Yeah, being honest yeah. or trying to be honest mm -hmm. might benefit people watching to have a dictionary by their hand. Aye, maybe so. <laughs> I love it though, but I mean, I I think people for lower class communities know not to pull that one with me now. <laughs> do you know what yeah, I mean? Because yeah. I'll literally just be like, ah, there's a dictionary, I'm sure you've got it in your app. Do you know what I mean? You've got an <laughs> app there for it, just look it up. Yeah. Because um, uh, that's just like, 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 sometimes I'll be at a certain kind of like maybe on a panel or something like that and, and like Kenan Park or something. And, uh, and, I, and, I'll, I, and I'll have just come from somewhere else when I'm, I'm in that mode of talking <laughs> and then I'm in this other place talking and I forget to kind of switch gears. 
and it's all the yeah. people think I'm a fanny, think I'm posh, think I'm privileged. <laughs> Fuck off, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Fuck off. The lengths I need to go to fucking mix with different types of people, do you know what I mean? And this is the fucking thanks I get after you. <laughs> Cunt. <laughs> is that lower class enough for you? <laughs> oh, brilliant stuff. If anybody wants to give me a brilliant. pissing contest about who's male working class, do you know what I mean? I'm happy yeah. to do that and all, but <laughs> fucking hell. Oh, how do you define success? Uh, success is about being able to accept where you are, I think, mm-hmm. um, wherever you are, and know that it's temporary, whatever it is. Um, and, and, and for me, that's what I'm always trying to get back to. You know, success for me is peace of mind. It's, it's being able to locate the present moment and stay there for as long as possible before I get caught up in <laughs> thinking again. Yeah. You know, you really do forget yeah. that. You uh-huh. forget that that, you know, it's it, it's eternally now. Yes. As opposed to this kind of, like, succession of past and future moments, you know? <laughs> um, but your your brain is so... provides such a kind of riveting simulation of what it thinks is going on that you can get caught up in it, you know? Yeah. And then, like, that, that was a, a lot of my drinking was about the ideation of things that didn't exist. You know what I mean? It was about getting caught up in hypothetical stuff or rerunning stuff in the past yeah. or rewriting history so I was the good guy all the time and and, uh, and actually all I ever had was now right now and peace of mind for me is like uh, having an awareness that I can return to that place mm-hmm. when I feel kind of set upon by the circumstances of life yeah, or when I'm yeah. consumed by the, the self you know <laughs> yeah absolutely which is which is, is is in many ways for me anyway the biggest enemy out there yeah but it's so easy to become to become um, immersed or enmeshed in like what you perceive to be reality when mm. it's just yeah right definitely <laughs> and it's a it's a whole other interest I mean just quickly it's an interesting realm of investigation for anyone out there yeah. one of the big problems that we have just now is the fact that we have social media as a mechanism by which we can express our political opinions and we can curate an agreeable version of reality for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And this actually socially inhibits our ability to uh, understand other people's points of view because yeah. we can actually just close them out. And not just that, but I think we're starting to come up against a wall actually of what we're mentally capable of being able to comprehend in terms of complexity. The internet and social media presents the whole world happening at once, mm-hmm. every single day, 24 hours of it. We can't actually process that complexity, so we create stories and narratives to whittle it all down to a manageable size, and this includes assuming the intentions of <laughs> institutions, other people in our lives, all manner of things, all under the false pretense that this is bringing us closer to understanding what's true mm. and actually it pushes us further away from reality a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. So I think what we're actually coming up against is not just that, that there's a broader diversity of opinion and in many ways parallel cultures now in an absence of an agreed reality, but also that our brains are not able to comprehend complexity that we're going to need to develop a mindfulness of that when we go into discussions with people mm-hmm. about our urges to dismiss what they have to say or to or, 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 or to do you know, all the other things that we do. Mm-hmm. People spend as much time clarifying what they meant and, uh, and, and recoiling from charges uh, <laughs> as they do actually talking about anything, you know, because yeah. it's always just everything's being misunderstood all the time. 
So I feel like that's a kind of fr an important frontier for us in our individual lives to really sort of consider yeah. when we think about why things seem so incomprehensibly uh, difficult. Mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Great answer. If you had the opportunity to speak to the 20 year old you, what would you say? Don't worry. Don't worry. Um, when I was 20, I was living in supported accommodation. I was, um, in many ways, I was really, really kind of like, I, I was a real fantasist, you know? Just a fantasist. I mean, I still am now. I cringe at some of the things that I thought back then. Um, Such as? Well, I was in so much danger back then from my lifestyle and really at risk of kind of falling to the bottom of society where all the hard drugs are uh -huh. and all the real difficulty is uh, where people really do deserve help and compassion and they really need it. And, uh, uh, but at the time, man, I was just like loving life and I was like, <laughs> and I just thought I was like, I just thought I was the bee's knees, man, yeah. in the hip hop community and, um, really in many ways sort of created a, a, created a very, uh, a very, like, a, I guess it's a sophisticated kind of delusion about where I was going in life, what was happening in my life, in order to really cope with what was the truth of my life, mm. which was, I was in grief, I was homeless, I was uh, detached from my family, I was detached from reality, I was living in a public service, I was on benefits, um, but you know I managed and I coped. Uh, uh, but but at the same time, you know when when it when when I was hungover, when I was rough, and the sort of fragile contours of my life are exposed, uh, then I was terrified, and I was really terrified about. Mm. I thought I was going to die young. I thought everyone hated me. I thought I was in danger. I thought I wasn't going to make anything in my life. And all false beliefs, you know, mm -hmm. all false beliefs in many ways that I, I started to sort of manifest because of the sheer uh, single-mindedness of, of, of thinking about them all the time. They started to sort of come true in a way. Um, so if I could talk to my 20-year-old self, I would just say, you know, don't worry. Like, it's going to be okay. Uh, and, and it often is, and it has been, and uh, continues to, to be okay. Yeah. If you could change anything in the world, what would it be and why? Hmm. Wow. Good question. If I could change anything in the world. See, there would have been a time where I would have superimposed something onto something that I thought would have been better for it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I would make this institution do this, or I would make these people like this, or I would take away this, um, and and actually, like, you know, realise uh, what you think is good for someone isn't always good for them. If you impose something on someone, even if you think it's good, they might not understand why you're doing it, and they might feel oppressed by what it is you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, if I could change one thing... <sighs> I don't know what it would be, but it would have to be, uh, it would have to be my own tendency to behave absurdly. <laughs> <laughs> Do you 
know what I mean? Like, like because uh, anything else is me imposing something on someone else. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. anything else is me imposing something on somebody else, or based on my assumption, based on what I want. So inner world rather than outer world. Aye, aye. Like, uh, like I'm starting to understand that that's where a lot of this change needs to come. Um, obviously, I mean, if I could just like totally like like insulate my son from harm, that would be what I would do. Yeah. Uh, you know, if I could like extend his life, or if I could make sure that he was going to be safe, or he was guaranteed at least immunity from some sort of difficulty, then that's where I would focus it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I I, I I don't I don't really. I mean, a part of me wants to say something, you know, to come across like Gandhi or something like that. <laughs> I would take away poverty or I would... Do, do you know what I mean? But it would, yes. it would be being dishonest. Uh, being dishonest, like, like I feel like... I saw, I think it was... It was a... Uh, it was a speech I had watched. Actually, it was Sam Harris. And it was a speech he did called Death in the Present Moment. And in the speech, he's... He's really trying to lend context to the... The, the inequality in the world, not in terms of our lifespan, but in the broader span of human civilization. And he says, you know, you, you know, it's all, there's so much inequity in the world, and it's very hard to reconcile. You know how you got someone who's earning a few pence an hour and making an iPod. And then you get the iPod and you're going to squander a lot of time on it and you're really like impressed with the device and is there any way to make sense of that disparity? <laughs> and, 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 and he, and you know, what essentially he's done is he's zooming out of the problem and looking at it in a broader context. Mm-hmm. And what he's saying is, uh, you know, we've made a lot of advances. It's difficult to climb down from the trees and stand up straight and build what he called a viable global society. Um, and he called it, he says, this is a project and it's difficult. And, 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 and you know, that for me kind of like encapsulates maybe where I'm heading in terms of my perception of what's really going on in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, too much of a tendency in the past to, to attribute heroes and villains and to, uh, to blame this circumstance on this privilege. And while obviously there's a lot of interplay between the two and we should always hold the powerful and privileged to account, mm-hmm. including ourselves, um, at the same time, I'm, I'm coming more into the, the, the realm of having good faith and ultimately the intentions of all actors uh, in society um, or at least that people are operating off the best knowledge that they've got and that, and, and that a lot of the inequities in society are because we were so culturally distant from one another that you know our interests are so so different from other people's because of these gulfs in our experience. Yeah. So not only are are, are the are, are the the things that sort of impact our beliefs and impact how we develop so vastly different, but speaking across these chasms and these divides is also really difficult because of all the assumptions that we make about other people and all of the bad faith. Mm-hmm and all of the anger and, and and I find for me that works because it reduces a lot of the negative feelings that make me uh, not very pleasant and not very happy. Uh, you know, bloody corporations or bloody Tories or, um, you know, it, it's not to absolve the, the inequality and it's not to absolve society of having to address 
the injustices of the world, mm -hmm. but it's to, to recognise that in the grand scheme of things we've made a lot of progress as a civilization, as a species, yeah. and that we always have to zoom out sometimes and, and look at what we've created. Yes. You know, while the, yeah. the inequality is deepening and widening, um, the, the standard of life for people at the bottom has come up for everyone. Definitely. And continues to come up. Yeah. And so you can be angry at the system and you can rally against it and you can demand change and you can force concessions and you can even revolt. Uh, but but that'll always only be temporary unless there's a gratitude running parallel to it and an understanding of the complexity of it and, and, in a, and an attempt to at least have good faith. Uh, the, 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 even the people that really disagree with you um, don't want you to come to harm. Mm -hmm. Their beliefs might mean you come to harm at least understand the intention. Yes, yeah. And if you can see the capacity for human error in someone else and see it <laughs> in yourself, yeah. then at least you can know that sometimes a lot of the problems of the world are, are, are because people don't know what to do and they're making assumptions about what to do and there's yeah. not perfect knowledge and you know, have compassion for ourselves <laughs> yeah. in some way as well. I mean, a lot of people might think that's not tough enough on folk, but I was shouting and tough enough on everything for years, you know what I mean? And I was actually just a mad delusional alky. <laughs> so <laughs> I really need to kind of like throw that into the mix when I'm looking at, you know, why was I so unhappy? Everything's on the table. And and a lot of that stuff, externalising blame for everything, you know, that was a big, big, big driver of a lot of the delusions that were fueling my uh, poor circumstances. Yeah. But I suppose you're now at a point of a far higher... Um, emotional maturity and uh, you know awareness and, and a far better place which is it's great aye aye getting there getting there with it I mean <laughs> just like I, I'm, I'm, I'm just like anybody else you know I'm, I'm, I have, can be really petty and judgmental and resentful and and I can um, I, I can be dishonest about how those things play a role in my beliefs uh, and in my politics and, and understate the role of bias and self-interest is a big one mm -hmm. um, and, and, and pretend that because a lot of other people who are self-interested uh, interests align with mine that we're all collectively altruistic when actually we're all quite self-interested we just all have the same self-interest you know? we want to rebuild society so we're not at the bottom and, and it doesn't matter what we do you know <laughs> So, so for, 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 I think that shows immaturity and juvenilia was a great word I heard no, the other yeah. day. Juvenilia, so it's a bit of juvenilia. I hope I'm using it in the right context. <laughs> um, so I like just, you know, just try to kind of like grow up a bit. You uh -huh. know what I mean, that's, that, that, that's where I'm at. And if I can be useful to anybody outside of that on the way, then good. But obviously, like my, my focus just now is creating stability um, for, for my family. And mm -hmm. that's that. That's my primary focus. Very noble, Darren. This has been amazing. I've I've absolutely loved um, you know spending time with you, hearing your thoughts, your answers. Absolutely brilliant. And um, yeah, I, I I can't wait to see the launch of your book. I'm sure it will be a huge success. And Hopefully. yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd really like to keep in touch. Brilliant. Thank you. Absolutely, absolutely welcome. Thanks so much for for being on the show. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Inspired Edinburgh. Please come and find us on social media and leave us a review on iTunes. Many thanks.